In this episode, we're going to take a look at how intelligence operations works and how you can apply that to your life, especially those trying to follow the gray man concept or even private investigators, really anybody out there. I'm just going to get it down to the basic concept of how those operations work, and they work the same way in the military, and then maybe you can see some sort of correlation with the things you're doing, skills you're practicing, or even if you're just working on the stuff we talk about, like building rapport, asking questions, getting information, following these two things and realizing the difference between the two and how to use them will make those efforts far more successful, and it may just help you in regular communication in your everyday life. So how do Intel operations work? That's what we're going to talk about right here on Grayman, Hiding in Plain Sight. Before we begin, I just want to quickly do something for Veterans Day that actually, as far as I know, is very different than anything else most people have seen. I haven't seen anything like this. I know people that have done what I'm about to read you, but it's a kind of a letter or note I wrote on a Facebook account, not the one you have access to or can see probably 10 years ago. I thought it was something a little different. And I think it is good for people to hear this and to make sure you know that veterans do appreciate people as much as you appreciate us. And I understand there's people out there have thoughts about the military and war and all these things, completely valid for anybody to have those thoughts and opinions. But this is something different. So here we go. For all those in the airports each time we came back, those who sent the anonymous gift bags, you let us use your phones, you gave us seats on an airplane, you bought us a beer or maybe a shot and you shook our hand, sometimes you picked up our dinner tab, you said thank you when we showed you an ID at the checkout stand, you nodded as we walked through the store wearing our uniforms, those kids who pointed into light when they saw us, for the families who supported us, all the videos of thanks, the letters I got from my sister, random letters we get from unknown people, and the letters we get from the young kids in the elementary school classrooms, the volunteers who packed all the USO toiletries for us, the seamstresses and dry cleaners that cut us a break as privates, and new service members when we were short a few cents or a few dollars, that guy we would pay to resole our boots so we could keep wearing them and use them on a road march, our moms, our wives, our girlfriends, all of our families, that drill sergeant we hated pushed us to our limits. That first sergeant or chief that we had, our kids, that first time in training when we were in charge and had to lead, the retiree from an old war long ago, all those we lost, those that are missing are dead and our friends. On Veterans Day, the community comes together to say thanks to the few past and present that either have chosen or were chosen to be part of an organization that may be called upon to fight our nation's war. We recognize all of you and appreciate your support. To our families, we will always see your sacrifice as greater than our own. That's just to give a little back and let you know that we appreciate everything you say to us, all of you out there that do it. So many of you that don't want anything returned, but... We recognize and appreciate what you do. And don't forget, any little effort you make to show support for somebody, no matter who they are, does help and does make a difference, even if you can't see it. So that being said, operations, let's look at the big picture of this. Operations can be broke down into two categories. Now, anybody that follows this for a long time, has been in the military, understands intelligence operations, those are many categories of operations, but 
I'm going to break this down into two things, and it's kind of the umbrella topic over everything I've talked about on this show in the last couple of years. So if you've been around a long time or you've just been around recently, but you've seen the titles, there are many things we talk about. We talk about the gray man concept. We talk about body language. We talk about detecting deception, building rapport, asking questions, intelligence operations that are going on in the world today, different espionage activities, understanding how all this stuff works. Really falls under this umbrella of intelligence operations. Now, the reason I brought the military into it was I'm going to talk about them briefly first to help understand the intelligence piece because sometimes just going straight into the intelligence piece can be confusing. So when we look at a military, we'll use our own. We'll use the American military because I'm in America. And we look at things like, I mean, a lot of militaries do this and militant organizations, but looking at our military, when we go to war, so let's say, let's use the example of Iraq. We go back into Iraq. What are the things that we do? We go there, we take troops, we take sailors, airmen, we take Marines, we invade, we're shooting bad guys, we're bombing strategic targets, and we're trying to overwhelm with military force. In order to do whatever we need to do to win that war, our actions are to destroy things. Later on, while those activities still happen to some degree, there's other actions that take place. Things people don't realize the military do. And it's not to make excuses, just to put in perspective. There are teams of people that go out and work with communities and leaders in the military in war zones, trying to help their community, trying to help them rebuild after a disaster or after an attack, or help do what they can to protect their village from a flood or they go in and help them get civil services that they're going to need and utilities or building bridges. And these are things where we, we put together or construct. Now, granted, in the military sense, these don't always go well. And sometimes, no matter what we think about it, we do things wrong. Or maybe it seems like we do them wrong. But it comes down to things get destroyed or they get constructed. That's to say, in the intelligence operation idea, it works the same way. Most intelligence operations are actually constructive. It's just you don't hear about them, you don't know about them. But there are, of course, destructive ones. I mean, parts of the intelligence community are people on the ground working much like special operations units do it. But while the military goal and the majority of what they do is war fighting, they do have some constructive aspects, just like using military transport, military soldiers to move relief supplies but most of it's made for war. In the intelligence community, they have assets and pieces and things they can do if needed for a war-type situation. But most of what they do works in both scenarios. It's mostly constructive. So why am I telling you all this? We talked about rapport a while back, and it's a good episode if you haven't heard it. Go back and look about rapport building. Things I've talked about in there are different ways we would build rapport and things that you may do that might kill your rapport or turn it off. And one of the things we used to teach people is people always say killing rapport is bad or negative rapport is bad. Negative rapport isn't necessarily bad things. You know, in interrogations, I don't know if I told the story on the podcast, but short version, we use negative rapport to kill relationships with interrogators in order to get a detainee focused on one interrogator. We knew they should talk to, but they definitely didn't want to. And that helped that situation. The idea is with rapport or with body language, we've learned certain things. We've learned that with enough practice, you could use it to persuade or manipulate people. Manipulation isn't automatically bad. There's more than one definition. 
but we can use it to make people feel more open. We can use it to make people feel more closed off. So if we use body language that is threatening and intimidating, and even if it's natural for us, because let's say we're a boss, we're yelling at somebody, it's a job where we can yell at somebody like in the military, we're taking these physical postures that are threatening and intimidating and they react to it. That is a destructive action. Not saying it won't work, but it is destructive. If we use body language, much like, say, a counselor would do, where they try to be understanding, get you to open up, be relaxed, non-threatening environment, and then you react to it, that is a constructive way of using rapport. Here's the thing to understand. While we say, as I've said many times, flies with honey's better, that's definitely true when you're meeting new people and you're in conversations, but while it's better, it's not always best. See, the hard part about this job, and it's even harder for people who've never had the training, and even if they've had the training, never had to do the job long-term or at any higher levels of activities, is to understand that we have to take our personal feelings and thoughts out of it about whether or not constructive or destructive is good or bad and realize they're both good. Neither is bad as far as the theory goes. What makes them good or bad is how they are used. Is it appropriate to use one over the other? Or perhaps, like I mentioned when I talked about interrogation approaches, for those who remember that, I talked about different techniques other than asking questions, building up their ego, tearing down their ego. I even talked about waterboarding and all these things we did. I pointed out that no matter what you think about different activities or communication methods, they're all good in theory. The question is, is it the right place and time? Is it the right person that you're going to use this method on? Or perhaps... Is the method perfect for this person, but you're not the one who should be doing it? Now, we think about that intelligence operations, but in your everyday life, it's probably just you working with somebody. That puts you at a disadvantage where you have to learn as many of these skills as possible to use them in many different ways quickly and rapidly in order to keep that conversation going, especially when you see the signs of it shutting down. Ever since my interview with Jim, I've thought a lot more about people like private investigators and police officers going out, talking to people, doing their job. Because at some point, they probably have to talk to somebody we know police officers do. And my friend Luke being a police officer and seeing what he does on the job and how good he is at de-escalating situations and the way he uses his body language is very interesting and he does it like a cop would do it. He displays body language in a way where it's very clear that he's not passive, but he's also not aggressive. He's definitely in authority and in control of the situation, but the way he communicates verbally and how he talks to people is very clear, matter of fact, when needed, but it's very disarming and de-escalating even when they get aggressive. So if somebody gets aggressive and says something, you know, they don't know what they're talking about, but I'm going to get you fired or whatever. And he was already told them, you know, you've got these two or three things. I'm just going to give you a ticket for this one. Then he can explain to them how this can change and what will likely happen. And he disarms them and wins in that conversation. Not that it's a competition or game. I just I think using the term win sounds good. That's the point out to say that you can use constructive and destructive means at the same time. You can very much argue that the description I just gave you of how he acts on a traffic stop looking at just his body language would turn into an argument about how it's destructive if he was not using constructive language when he was talking. What if he was chose to escalate? What if he raised his voice at him? What if he started pointing his finger? What if he felt like or reacted in a way where he put his hand on his firearm after he's already up there and got their identification? All of a sudden, even if nothing happens, 
what it looks like is, well, hey, you said A, B, and C, and this is where you went wrong, and look at your body language. But display the same body language or close to it, maybe not pointing the finger, but have the constructive attitude in order to de-escalate and disarm and get people to cooperate through persuasion. All of a sudden, we don't think of that body language as destructive. Same thing. One of the things I mentioned to you is going with your gut. Remember, depending on the study you read, on average, 70-80% of all communication is nonverbal. Think about this. If you haven't seen this in person, you've probably seen it in a movie. Where you get somebody that stands up to somebody or gets aggressive, they say things, scary things, threatening things, whatever they do, but they kind of get laughed at. Even if it's a movie, if they don't explain it, part of the reason people do that in real life is because the reason they can tell they're probably full of it or fake is actually that nonverbal section that's most of that conversation where they can tell by the way he's standing and acting that in fact he is not the threat he's portraying to be. It's the exact opposite of what Luke does, but you don't get success out of it because most of what they're getting is not what they're hearing and they realize, yeah, this isn't going to work out well. This is also to point out, especially if you've been a long-time listener and you've heard about report building and reading body language and things I've said about manipulation, and I'm sure you've had your own thoughts on it, it's to understand these are all strategic actions. Remember that I said when spies do this, collectors do it, the difference between them and you, even if you learn all these skills, is they do it with intent. They have a plan. They know what they want to get out of it. No matter how many times they've done it with the same person, there's still a plan. There's still intent. And they navigate and control that situation, that conversation to the best of their ability. That is to say that it's important to recognize in the way in which we communicate with people. It's just as valid to say that destructive actions can work. But here's the thing. If you also remember on a previous episode, I think I did this year, I talked about, actually I've talked about this many times, we talked about the ways in which we're memorable and that people tend to remember the negative a lot more than they remember the positive. You could tell somebody something nice and they might get a high from it all day, but they probably won't remember anymore. But if you say something they don't like or offends them, even if you don't know, it's not uncommon for somebody to be mad for days, even weeks. That's to say that part of strategic intent when you have conversations, you're trying to get information, you're reading body language, you're using your own body language, all the stuff we talk about is to remember that there is a place for destructive just like there is a place for constructive. But constructive tends to work more for several reasons. One, people like to feel good. People like to feel validated. I've told you that before. People are out for their own best interests. People love to hear good things about themselves. That's just humans. That's how we are. Which means more often than not, you'll be using constructive means. But don't forget that some destructive actions have their benefit. And sometimes you'll learn and see if you practice these skills that you'll have an overall constructive conversation. But somewhere in there, you may throw in little things that are destructive and you do them for different reasons. Throw the person off, get them back on the conversation, different things like that. What happens when you go in and you talk to the boss, you're having a conversation, things are going to change at work. You're feeling really relaxed and comfortable, not realizing everything they're doing to make you feel comfortable. And then you say a joke that maybe it's not inappropriate for the workplace, but it's definitely inappropriate for you at your level to talk to that supervisor at their level. And they say, hey, that's not appropriate. That's a challenge that can be seen as destructive, but they do it to keep you on task and keep you focused. And then they get you back in the situation. 
that's how things work. So the next time you're out and you're doing these activities, and let's say you're doing the activities I mentioned and then some of, I think the first situational awareness video I did, one of the first few episodes, and you're sitting at the restaurant and you're listening to people, start thinking about the types of conversations they have. Is it overall constructive? Is it overall destructive? Which parts of it are constructive? Which parts of it are destructive? Did it work? Did it not work? And when you start identifying those, move on and say, well, the reasons it did or didn't work, is it because of who this person is that's communicating that didn't work well for them? Or is it because of who they're listening? Is it just because of the environment? Planning and listening and using those things will help you in your own situations, navigating life, whether you're just, I don't know, maybe there's people out there listening to this just because they like the communication aspect of how to work with people. And then some of you out there trying to learn these so you can do things with intent to get information. You know, remember in one of the episodes I talked about getting out of a conversation. If you go back and read listen to that about getting out of that conversation when you don't want to be in it anymore, everything I'm telling you to do is destructive. You're killing rapport, you're killing communication and the openness by body positioning and the things that you're saying and doing so that ideally it's not completely overt to them, but subconsciously they get the idea this conversation's over, you don't want to be in it anymore. That is to explain that to say constructive is good and destructive is bad is not the right way to look at it. The right way to look at it is they both work, they both have a place, and they both can be used for good, and they both can be used for bad. If you don't think so, this is a good example of a movie. Almost any villain in any movie at some point, usually earlier on, gets some sucker to do something because they're nice to them. They use constructive things. Different communication techniques, different things that we use interrogation like approaches to build their ego up, make them feel good, tell them how proud they are. Perhaps they give them a award, they give them money, whatever. And that sucker, because in the movie, their role is a sucker. They have no idea this guy is bad in a lot of situations. They, or he's not as bad as everybody seems, but they're actually being manipulated, right? Because it is manipulation. But the reason it's negative is this guy's actually bad hiding his true intentions. He's using all constructive means for a bad thing. In the same way, just like that one little snippet of a conversation where your boss uses destructive means to get you back on point, he's using it in a good way. That's why I'm saying they're neither good or bad. It's just understanding how to use them, whether or not it's going to work in this situation, whether or not it's going to work on that person, if it's only a person, because it could be a group of people, whether or not you're the right person to do it. I mean, some of you out there probably have been in a role at some point in your life, even as a parent or maybe just on the job, where something had to be done to a subordinate, whether it was discipline or a conversation or correction, and maybe you or somebody else realized that the person that should be doing it or typically would do it isn't the best person for that job because of who they're going to talk to. Yes, this is your job, but I think with the way their personality works and your personality works, I don't think that's a good match. I think we're going to have somebody else do it. Now, maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. But it's people recognizing that there's a conflict there which could be more in personalities. It could just be what that other person needs as far as the way things are said that you're just not capable of doing or not that good at. Or maybe it's about the way in which you communicate that's very effective with most people, but it's just not the right thing for this person. That's how the communication game works. So what's the point of this episode? We're adding into our toolkit a thought process of our strategic intent and any conversation we have that we think about or we plan for or we find ourselves in the middle of Try to decide what things I want to do and why, and then are they constructive or deconstructive so that I can understand whether or not they're going to be effective, what are going to be the effects afterwards, you know, like the old military term, second and third order effects. 
what could the effect be from this? Is it actually best for me to use destructive means or is that just me doing it because of how I feel about things? Is it best for me to use constructive means or is that what I want to do because of how I feel about things? Because you want to double check that. It's very easy to be in a negative emotional state. We'll just say upset to keep it simple in a conversation and go straight to destructive means. I mean, how many arguments have turned in like that, especially during the pandemic? Oh my God, being locked in with the same person, so quick and easy to go that route. But in the same way, what happens if we're in an emotional means of support, like sympathy or empathy, or perhaps we're joking around a little too much or we're super happy. And then in the same way as the negative, we take that too far and it doesn't work. What this does is allow you to give more ways to look at conversations you're going to have, more ways to plan them out, more ways to think about that person you're talking to or that group of people. What is their nature? How do they behave? How do they act? How do they tend to react to these situations? Or based on everything I know, how do I think they could in order to decide what actions you want to take and then realize, is it constructive? Is it deconstructive? Is it both? Am I working them both together? How do I do it to make it work for good, no matter which method I use or if I use both? Now, going back to the whole subject of how this started, military operations, when I discussed that in the title of the show, how do these intelligence operations work? Crazy as it sounds, if you go back and think about another episode, when I talked about Julian Assange and talked about things like ethics and morals and law, whether or not they're openly discussed with groups of people in an office or just in their own head, these types of discussions happen when planning all levels of all operations in the military intelligence community. We have options. We have ways that we can do them. Are they constructive? Are they deconstructive? What happens with it? Look at the big famous ones. What happens to, let's say, Islam in general? Also, what happens to Sunnis in general? What happens to terrorist groups in general? And definitely what happens to Al-Qaeda in general? And let's also not forget the Taliban in general, if we actually kill bin Laden. Okay, far more questions than that have been asked and answered and analyzed, but they think about those things as the effects that can happen because we're going to do a destructive operation. That's how they're going to see it. you know. And then look at that operation further. Well, we're going to go into Pakistan at night. Now, whether or not we know publicly if that government was aware of it, what happens in that location, how do people react, what happens when the world finds out, what are people going to say, things get looked at like this all the time and in far more detail than we ever even know. Now, let's use bin Laden again. I talked about this before on the 9-11 stories when I mentioned that when we got all of his computers and hard drives and all this stuff, and we went through all of his letters, saw all the things that are out there, stuff that's been released by the CIA publicly talks about things. Like, for example, bin Laden actually thought by launching these attacks, and not just what happened, remember, there was other attacks that were going to happen that never did or were stopped. He thought by doing all of these that there would be public outcry and protests and riots in the streets of the United States and possibly even other allied nations. And then we'd have no choice to pull out of the Middle East. That was his thought process. He was shocked that we went to war over it, especially so quickly and showed up. He was shocked that that happened. He was shocked that other nations got on board with it. That's how far off he was because that's the best he thought. Now, crazy as it sounds, here's a theory. No matter what you think of protests or riots or what side you sit on politically, leading up to the pandemic, because it was already happening and all through the pandemic, we had all these activities. They're even on the news today because the people are on trial. And it went all the way through. And then we had 
the January 6th thing in the Capitol, and we had stuff in cities, autonomous zones, and things happening all over the country for like well over a year, probably two years, right? If the 9-11 attacks had happened in that time frame, it would have been easy for the public to tie that sentiment on to what they were already doing. There's actually a possibility that it could have went better for what they wanted. Now, granted, we have to balance that about the fact of how long it had been, how many other terrorist attacks did or didn't happen. In fact, we probably aren't at war at that point. There's many other factors. But if for any reason we would have been in that position, we were during the pandemic at the time of those attacks, he might have had a better chance of getting the results he wanted. Probably not. I think we'd go to war in a heartbeat over something like that. But it's just a theory to try to explain how things are looked at on the large scale, what we call the big lens, and then focusing down to the stuff I'm describing to you using our small lens in our everyday life. So think about that next time you're collecting information, next time you're on the job talking to somebody, maybe you're just in a heated conversation with a loved one. Think about what you're saying and what they're saying. Try to look past what you think you're hearing or believe they mean, realizing that they're upset and probably you are too, trying to understand their body language and see what's going on. You know, if they're sounding threatening, but they're acting defensive, that's a little different. Perhaps maybe this helps you out the next time an argument comes up or helps you out on the job. I hope all of this helps you out in some way, shape or form, even if it just helps you have a little entertainment, or even if it helps you stay distracted and stay awake on that long drive across the country, because I know so many people do that just like I do. And don't forget, lastly, I'll say this. Look in the show notes. You got my contact information in there for my email. You got my social media accounts. Take advantage of those. Send me a comment. Give me a question. That will definitely help me out. And also remember that if you leave me a voice message or you email me a question, and I dedicate a whole show to it, we still have a few free subscriptions out there for PI Magazine. Those would be interested in that trade publication. And if you're interested in seeing the kind of stuff they do, go to PIMagazine.com and you can check that out. But all you got to do is send me a question that's somewhere related to the things we've talked about in all these episodes. And I will definitely let you know when I record the episode, as well as contacting you directly, that you definitely are up and can have one of those subscriptions. If you like this episode, don't forget us a like, share, heart, whatever your platform is using and Make sure you let people know you think will enjoy this material. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're at. And don't forget to check out the show notes. and Check out dmrpublications.com. And we will be back again shortly with more information right here on Grayman, Hiding in Plain Sight.